Well, this is Easter Sunday, Sunday we refer to as Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday that we celebrate, remember, teach, and sing about the fact that our Lord is risen, and He is risen indeed. And because of all the uh, traditions and memories and experiences of Easter's past, I suppose this probably makes our fifth week together under this arrangement the most different of all of them, just because of what this is supposed to feel like. And meeting this way is just unlike, I would suppose, any other Easter you've ever spent with anyone else. And I suppose it would be okay to say I sincerely hope this is the last Easter this way, but not without risking... um, short-selling the Lord's providence and His sovereignty and bypassing lessons that He has for us to learn, things He would have for us to see, feelings He would have for us to feel, and perhaps work of His Holy Spirit that He has chosen to do in no other way but this. Easter was important in the home I grew up with. certainly was, of course, because I grew up in a pastor's home. And uh, it was from the perspective of a child that grew up in a pastor's home, Easter was one of the three big Sundays in the calendar year. There's always the Sunday closest to Christmas. And then there's Easter, and those are usually the highest attended Sunday services. But then there was another one that could sometimes be as big, maybe even bigger, and that would have been homecoming, and only because of the food where a kid could see more food and have more options than he'd, he'd ever for another year have the opportunity to be part of. But with Easter, um, sometime between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and that seemed to be uh, how everything got uh, started and pulled together. It began with, with Palm Sunday. We'd start uh, bothering our mother to let us go up into the attic to get the Easter baskets. Because we knew sometime after... Saturday night and before Easter morning, Mom would fill those baskets full of all kinds of stuff. Dad wasn't too keen on the whole thing. Uh, Not that he necessarily had a problem with the Easter bunny. He just knew that the effects of that bunny was to rot everyone's teeth out of their head, he would say. Um, And could be a distraction for what needed to take place, and that was getting to church And uh, usually getting dressed was different because it included new clothes and always a final inspection before you left the door and got into the car to head to church. And uh, at one specific Easter morning, I do remember it involved some new white pants that my brother was given and how that uh, an inspection was failed. Uh, But that's another story for another time. When we got to church, it would start with Sunday school, and we could expect certain crafts that we would do as kids or pictures we would color, most having to do with an empty tomb and lessons layered one on another, not only from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, but all those Sundays of my life to reinforce the fact that our understanding of God is different than any other religion, we serve a risen Savior who came for the purpose of paying for our sins to win back our privilege 
of presence with our Creator that was ruined because of our sin. That's what Easter means. And to do that in isolation or distanced from one another somehow seems to rob it of some of its meaning. Though for a time, it might do the, the duty of bringing to our remembrance really the, the importance of it all. So today we're going to look in our Bibles at a passage that is familiar this time of year. And after spending well over a year in the Gospel of John and being quite familiar by now with his purpose for writing, that you may believe, that's actually the title of our series, and that is to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, we're going to take a shift from John's Gospel. We covered the events of Palm Sunday last week where John explained to us how Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, including palm branches and singing his praises, but it will take us a better part of a year to, to, to study our way to chapters 19 and 20, which is where he covers the contents of the Easter weekend. So it took us a year to get from chapter 1 to chapter 12. It's likely to take us the same amount of time to get over to chapter 19 and 20. Perhaps it'll land just right for next Easter. If you've ever had the opportunity, and this is what I've, I've found in my study, though it's, it's nothing new to the, the Bible student. If you've had the experience of looking at a harmony of the Gospels, and that is typically where uh, a, a book will be bound with all four Gospels in four columns on the same page, but arranged chronologically so you get to see where the gospel accounts differ in what is being said and it, it really doesn't take you any time at all just thumbing through a harmony of the gospels to find out that John is really the odd man out that he seems to be cutting his own path along the way where the first three Matthew Mark and Luke seem to line up quite often John doesn't as much and the same is true with what takes place during the passion week Specifically, for example, if you were to look at the crucifixion itself, for the first three hours of the crucifixion, John gives us more details than any of the other three. But then when you get to the second three hours, the hours under darkness, John gives us the least amount of details compared to the other three. And by the time you get to the phenomena, as is described, the things that happened at the point of Christ's death, miraculously speaking, John doesn't record any of those. Not that they weren't important to him, and perhaps because they were so well known by his audience. He chooses to focus our attention in, a, in another way, specifically toward the end of convincing us to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. So what we'll do today is look at what we will not find in John's Gospel, when we do study the Easter account, whenever that may be. So today we turn to Matthew 27. And we'll read the events that took place at the end of the crucifixion. And while you're turning there, Matthew 27, it's, it's been a wonder of mine uh, to consider how little 
is actually said about the, the death of Jesus as far as how that took place. And you can say the same thing about his birth. The most dramatic events of the story of God on earth amount to really not much more than a handful of details. Comparatively speaking, with all the other things that the gospel accounts are full of, perhaps not enough to satisfy our lusts for details, but certainly enough for the Holy Spirit to make his point, and certainly enough for what John had said that we discussed last week. He will guide us into all truth when we're given the Holy Spirit. There's enough here to put everything together. But from what we're looking at today, the paragraphs in Matthew 27, 45 through 54, these have more to do with what happened surrounding the death of Christ than how the death of Christ actually took place on a physical or even a medical level. So if he is indeed who he said he was, we're taking John's argument, but we're adding other evidence from another gospel writer, a tax collector, to John's argument here today to answer these questions. If he was indeed who he said he was, surely he could not die without signs that point to that fact. And although Jesus is truly, in this passage, we will read, God forsaken. His death was not without his father's commentary. His father did some things, miraculous things, mighty things. And of the three or 30,000 rather or so crucifixions that the Romans were responsible for up to this point, this one will prove to be unlike any of the others. So let's read and then we'll ask for our Lord's help. Verse 45, Matthew chapter 27, now from the sixth hour... There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with your word open in our laps on Easter Sunday, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? May we be your students. May you be our teacher. And may the result be our obedience, our understanding, 
are less like ourselves and perhaps more like you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, we'll organize what we just read this way. Five miracles. You can count them as we move through. Five miracles of the cross of Christ. The first we see there in verse 45 with darkness. From high noon to three o'clock in the afternoon, the land was covered with darkness, the record tells us. We also have extra biblical evidence of such a thing, as others wrote about being aware of a darkness, and specifically from noon to three o'clock. And the idea that it was a local darkness might not necessarily be the case, being that the word for land over all the land until the ninth hour, that word is also used of earth. And being that the half of the earth is dark at all times, we call that night, I don't suppose it would be difficult to make the whole thing dark if you're the man who created the earth and the sun that lights it. But for it to look like midnight at midday is quite the supernatural miracle. It wasn't a small thing. And it's interesting to read about how folks go uh, along trying to account for it naturally. It really can't be explained naturally. An eclipse, which some have said that it might have been, only lasts about seven minutes. And if you... Uh, we're privileged to watch the one here just a few years ago and got your special glasses so you could look at the sun and not have your retinas burned out. Um, it was weird, but I wouldn't describe it as darkness. And we weren't in complete path of totality either, being in Virginia. You folks were closer to the stripe, I think, that ran through South Carolina. But that wouldn't account for this. But that aside, just thinking about what we know to be true from Scripture and indulging our imaginations as to how the Father commentates on the happenings involving the execution of His Son. When God created the world, He started by saying, let there be light. The work of creation took place in the light. But the work of redemption was carried out in the darkness. The one who put a star in the sky at his son's birth now snuffs out the sun at his death. How he did it we don't know. What we do know is what happened. And it was in the dark that Jesus asked why his father had forsaken him. And that is one, that is the height of theological mystery that would take months to even get started. And like Luther, who was said to have gone away in seclusion to figure this out for himself, came back more confused than when he left. These are things that are not meant for us to be understood. When it happened, the lights were turned out. So that we're not able to see. When he who knew no sin was made sin for us, no one was permitted to watch. And what did he say? Everyone knew what he said. It was a line out of a very familiar psalm. 
the opening verse. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Write it down, look it up. There's way more to that, enough to make the hair stand on everyone who was attending that crucifixion. As in their mind, they recalled the contents of that psalm and were able to view it being played out before their eyes, involving being pierced in his hands and feet, casting lots for his clothes, people standing and watching and mocking all of these pre-written history part of Psalm 22. But that's the first miracle involved the Son and it being blotted out. Number two, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit, another theological mystery, to dismiss one's own spirit. But look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the veil that was part of the temple complex. It hung inside the temple in Jerusalem, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Jewish tradition is where we find some details, though not scripture. Tells us that it hung 60 feet from the floor and spanned the full width of the room. It was woven to the thickness of a man's hand and could have weighed more than a few tons. And because there's some difference in what was explained as originally part of the tent of meeting and then the tabernacle and then the first temple, this is the second temple, some have claimed this to be an exaggeration. But perhaps for your consideration might be interesting to know that it was Herod the Great that was responsible for the building, the rebuilding of the temple as it stood in Christ's day. Herod was known for his massive construction projects. If you've been on a tour of Israel, these things are highlighted because his architecture was quite magnificent. Known for his projects, and this is just a small list, the Herodium, Caesarea by the Sea, along with its aqueduct, Masada, Antonia Fortress. But most ambitious by far was the rebuilding of the temple. And if there was a calling card specific to Herod the Great, it would be his over-engineering everything, both for aesthetics, beauty, technological advance, you name it. The only thing that would surpass the greatness of these buildings was perhaps his ego that fueled it all. It's interesting that Jesus wasn't impressed. When they were talking about the temple, he reminded them. Prophesied, actually. One stone would not remain on another. The veil was in that building. And it was torn from the top to the bottom, the scripture says. I've heard that a yoke of oxen wouldn't have been able to rip this veil apart. And certainly not from the top to the bottom. If men were going to tear it, they'd start from the bottom to the top. This was as supernatural of an act as the darkened sun was. But the question we really ought to ask ourselves is, what does that mean? What's the significance of the rending, the, the tearing in two from 
top to bottom of this veil. Theologically speaking, from our studies in the Old Testament, the veil stood as a barrier, and a very significant barrier, a barrier between God and His people as far as their worship of Him. Behind the veil, the Spirit of God would hover over the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the cover over the Ark of the Covenant, and it included the cherubim with their wings outstretched, facing each other and looking downward. Inside this ark, a box that was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, was the rod of Aaron that budded, a pot of manna from the wilderness, and an unbroken copy of the tablets of stone that bore the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, were written by the the finger of God. Maybe you're thinking now of the Ten Commandments that we watch and how that all took place, which is nothing compared to how... It actually took place. But no one was ever allowed into the Holy of Holies where this ark resided, behind that veil where it was constantly dark. Save one man who was the high priest, one day during the calendar year, the Day of Atonement. And if you consider those restrictions, there's only a handful of people that ever went behind that veil. And all the important people that we know from Sunday school, David, Solomon, Jeremiah, Isaiah, even Jesus never went behind that veil. On that day alone, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would pass through this veil. We read all this in the Old Testament. In one hand with a basin of blood from the sacrifice of a bull that would atone for his sins and his family's. And also from the sacrifice of a goat, the blood of a goat, to atone for the sins of the entire nation. And in the other hand, a censer of coals from off the altar, along with two handfuls of sweet incense. And we learned that the protocol was that the incense was to be burned over those coals, and its smoke was to cover the mercy seat, blotting out, as it were, the priest's presence before God, Because the verses specifically say that he not die. He can't be seen. The incense symbolically would block out his presence in that room. And the blood was to be sprinkled on the mercy seat with his finger for the atonement of sin once a year. You can only imagine uh, the anxiety that would accompany being the only man on the only day of the year to sprinkle blood over the mercy seat under which the presence of God would hover where he had said he would meet with his people. I don't think that man would stay in there any longer than it would take to actually take care of that objective and get out. Again, the Jewish traditions say that they would wear bells So people would know they're still alive back there. Or a rope around their waist in case they did something wrong and were smitten dead. They could drag the body out rather than going themselves, which they thought would be certain death. Quite a thing to imagine. And although Jesus also fulfills the image of the scapegoat, which is another 
day, the day of atonement. This is Passover. It's a different feast. So what does this rending of the veil mean specifically to Passover during the week, perhaps the day, even the exact hours where thousands of Passover lambs are being sacrificed to atone for the sins of the families of Israel? And the truth to answer this as concisely as possible, the shadows of the Old Testament are now being replaced by the substance of the New Covenant. In other words, other than interruption of the exile, that veil had hung there for 1,500 years as a testimony of the separation of God and man, but now everything, because of the death of the ultimate sin sacrifice, everything has changed. Let me read to you from Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That was the specifics. So all we need to do is connect the dots. Through the ages, God had gone to extreme lengths to meet with his people including prophets and priests and kings and chants after chants after chants to be their God and to have them be obedient as His people. But any time He had any dealings with them, at His command, the blood of a spotless lamb was the only means by which a meeting was possible. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest was a picture of things to come. It was a picture of the work of Christ And Christ was the final sacrificial lamb. He had just said, it is finished and died. There's no longer any use for a veil to separate God from man. It is finished. The veil is rent in two. Through Jesus, God can again embrace his people by the work of his son. All this sounds fantastic at some point. And it's good to remind ourselves to make no mistake that these are historical truths. The tabernacle was real. The Ark of the Covenant was real. The mercy seat was real. The cross was real. The empty tomb was real. And a real woman stooped to look into the tomb with two real angels, one on either side of where the ultimate blood sacrifice had lain, almost as descriptive of what? A mercy seat. These dots are connecting together. So the purpose of the veil was to say, stay out. I am holy, you're not. And until we fix that, we have nothing to do with one another. Now at the precise moment of Jesus' death, the veil is torn in two. This can only mean one thing, and that is, come on in. I've made a way for you to approach me, to be righteous, to be clean, to be as you were when I created you and pronounced you good. So if we just explore the implications, ramifications of this 
for millennia, the means of approaching the presence of God and the spilling of blood is now over. The Lamb of God has paid our price. Instead of stay out, it's come on in and tell me everything. What's on your heart? What's on your mind? Walk in the garden with me. We're back to the garden. Number three, the earth shook and the rocks were split. We're only halfway there. You remember last week, we're studying Palm Sunday, and two, uh, two crowds converge. They're at a fever pitch, palm branches singing Hosanna, and the Pharisees that were there told Jesus to tell them to stop, to be quiet. And what did Jesus say? We read this last week. And some of them, the Pharisees in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Remember, I told you, we'll save this for next week. Well, the crowds are holding their peace, and the rocks are crying out. The only voice of protest is from a dying thief who is promised paradise before the day is out. But just to read something that had taken place earlier in Matthew's gospel. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them all. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis. And from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Where are they now? They're holding their peace. God's commentary on this is to split the rocks. And witness to the testimony of his son in whom he's well pleased. Number four. The tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. Now, if you haven't engaged your imagination yet, I don't know if I can help you. God gave you an imagination, and maybe your teacher told you all through school you need to put that away. This is when you need to get it out. This is a playground for the imagination. First of all, it must have been some earthquake to dislodge graves. Tombs, either above or below ground. Enough for the tombs to give up many bodies and be exposed to full view. This wouldn't have gone unnoticed, when you say. Matthew almost acts like it's a footnote. I think that's because everybody knew this. And this is why Paul was able to say to Agrippa much later down the road, this wasn't done in a corner. Everybody knows it. And there wasn't a thing anybody could do about it. If you were a good Jew at Passover, you touch a dead body, you're done for Passover week. You're disqualified. You can't approach the temple. You can't do any of it. So they have to leave them that way over the weekend as they just sit. But then if you pay attention to verse 53 after the resurrection they went into the city and appeared to many while you're imagining what this must have looked like don't let that distract you from the meaning of what's happening 
When Jesus died, the graves burst open. So something about the power of the grave was disrupted the moment Jesus said, It's finished. It's got to mean something. Again, verse 53, after his resurrection, and that's because no one could precede the first fruits of those which have fallen asleep, right? Those bodies of the sleeping saints were raised. They went into the city and appeared to many. So what we learn from 53 is when he arose, they arose. That the power of the resurrection was such that it spread to others. It couldn't be contained. These were believers. They're described as saints. Dead and gone, back to life, walking around, seeing folks and being seen all after the resurrection. So just as the veil of the temple was torn in two and had no more significance as a barrier between God and man, now death itself has no significance as a barrier between God and man. Death is a wage of sin. The wage of sin has been paid for. So just as death has no claim on Jesus, it now has no claim on those who belong to Jesus. Spiritually speaking. And as a demonstration of the power of our resurrected Lord, He selectively takes some home early. That makes the most sense, that they wouldn't just climb back in and pull the dirt over their heads. I think they went home early. Though we're not specifically told that. But it does look as though whatever happened, they were given the privilege of a victory tour before whatever took place. Number five. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. This may very well have been the most powerful of these five miracles. How so? Well, it would involve putting yourself in the shoes of a Roman soldier, which is probably difficult to do. We're not Romans. We're not even Hellenized. Of course, so many parts of our culture, especially our our law, heavily influenced by their thinking. We know of their history, but to just try to think yourself through what it would be like as this man, this Roman captain in charge of a hundred men, was here on this day. I think it's safe to assume that the Romans, especially their soldiers, were afraid of nothing, if anyone was afraid of nothing. Just to familiarize or rehearse some of what we know as far as the history of Roman culture. Rome had controlled Judea for some 70 years at this point and had swelled or changed in their structure of power from a republic to an empire during the same time. Through the early Roman Empire was known as the Pax Romana. It was the most people and prosperous peaceful and proper of the ancient world as far as an era would go, which made possible so much of what we see in these gospel records. 
But the fear that the Pharisees and the chief priest had regarding Rome was not un, undue or misplaced. Judea occupied an awkward position with Rome. And the significant challenge was that these people would not surrender the worship of their own God. Or more specifically, add to it worship of the emperor. So they were looked at differently. There were no better trained or better equipped soldiers than Romans, as far as this man and his occupation. They'd come to control the entire civilized world, one bloodbath at a time. To consider this one specific centurion might, might involve wondering what he thought of his deployment there in Judea. Perhaps he figured he'd done something wrong. Maybe he had done something wrong. Maybe that was why he was there. Judea would have been at the bottom of any Roman's list. No one would vacation there. And if they did, it wouldn't be Jerusalem. It would be Caesarea by the sea. Or Masada. Or any of these seaside resorts. But not Jerusalem. This man probably viewed his culture as far superior to these religious zealots. His culture was known... How should I put this? Um, brutality and, and bloodlust was considered a national sport. Entertainment, really. In the, in the form of the arena. Men would be brutalized to the applause of thousands. That's where this man was from. That's where he grew up. That was part of his life, his understanding, his culture. And now he's risen through the ranks. He's in charge of a hundred men. He's been given his job in a place he probably wouldn't choose, but to do something he's very used to doing. It's his job. And he carried it out effectively. So on a certain level, the centurion wouldn't see anything on this particular day that he hadn't seen before. And if you rewind and see some of the things that took place in the passages before what we read this morning, it wasn't that Jesus meant nothing to this man because they did have quite a bit of fun at his expense. And we know about the things that were done to Jesus scourging and the, the royal robe and the crown of thorns which is particularly dramatically telling that mankind would take the very curse that was placed on them thorns and thistles and shove it back into the face of their creator just to view what's going on but it's nothing to these men in fact we're told after they'd done this and even used lots to decide who gets his clothes, they sat down and watched him. I don't know what else is left to do after you've nailed the Son of God to a cross but to sit down. But that's how callous they are. And they're sitting and they're watching. But that was at 9 o'clock. By 3 o'clock that afternoon... 
This same Roman centurion confesses as clear as any other confession in Scripture. Truly, this was the Son of God. When Peter had said something similar, Jesus replied, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The fifth and final miracle is that God had opened the eyes of this Gentile to the truth that otherwise would have seemed an absurdity. God chose him for himself. And folks, this is the one out of the five miracles from the cross of Christ that God is pleased to do over and over and over and over again. He's still convincing people through his word by the Holy Spirit that he is who he said he was. This is the power of the cross. That provides God in heaven the justification to take back to himself we who walked away from him in sin. And at the great cost of the blood of his own son. A cost he was willing to make in trade. To gather to himself a people for himself. Question is, have you answered the call? Do you belong to Jesus? Has his work on the cross been applied to your personal account? Jesus is still in the business of changing lives. All because of the power of the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Easter Sunday. We thank you for your commentary on the death of your son. Five miracles that established the basis of belief that changed the heart of a Roman centurion, changed my heart, my life, my mind, my belief. Lord, I ask on this day we call Easter, would you be pleased to do so with others? May they be ready to say with so many others, truly, this is the Son of God. Thank you for our church. Thank you for each other. Thank you for this room, this pulpit, an internet connection. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we thank you for a day where we'll all see each other's faces again. But until then, may we be found about your business. May we be found doing the best with what we've got. May we be found redeeming the time, praising your name, encouraging others, and winning souls because of the power of the cross. These things we ask in your precious name. Amen.